We're live. Gentlemen, good to see you both. Brandon, good to see you again. Dan, nice to connect finally. Thanks for having us. Looking yeah. forward to it. Um, yeah, I was just explaining this to you guys, but you know, I was out for a run the other day and Brandon, I was listening to your uh, new piece as read by Guy Swan, best in the business. And uh, I just, I had read some of Dan's pieces before about planting Bitcoin. And of course, I'm you know, familiar with your work uh, uh, with the analogy to mycelium. And uh, with no particular angle, I just thought it would be fun to get the two of you together to both kind of look at uh, Bitcoin and where we are with Bitcoin through the lens of kind of an organism, a plant, uh, mycelium, and then also reflect on, on where we are today, because there certainly seems to be, it certainly seems to be a moment of, you know, to use the plant analogy, you know, great growth, but also great stress and, and, and pressure. So uh, no particular, you know, bent on this one, though, so we can, we can just have a chat and see where it goes. But um, maybe for the people that aren't too familiar with you guys, a, a brief introduction is, is warranted. Yeah, you want to go first, Dan? Sure. Uh, so I'm Dan Held. I work at Kraken. So I'm on the growth team over there. We focus on getting more customers into Kraken and having them find value in the product right away. That value would be them going and buying Bitcoin. Um, and so that's on my, my work side. On the personal side, I've worked at uh, four other crypto companies. I've had two exits in the space. One of those companies was sold to Kraken. I've been around for eight years um, and I'm a diehard Bitcoiner who loves Bitcoin. And over the last two years, I've started writing kind of extensively about different topics in the space. One included planting Bitcoin, which is a four-part series about how Bitcoin is analog analogous to the planting of a plant. And, uh, you know, this is not the first time Brandon and I have talked. We've uh, had a couple beers out of the Boston MIT uh, Bitcoin conference. So I'm excited. It's been a little while since him and I have jammed. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Love it. Love it. And I'm Brandon Quidham, in case you guys don't know who I am. Um, I bumped into Bitcoin in the early days a few times, like many of us around the Silk Road and other times. Uh, and then 2017, number go up technology lured me back in. Um, bopped around in the industry, just sort of decided this is important and I'm going to re-architect my professional life around Bitcoin. And sort of, sort of hit pause on the old stuff and found my way eventually to Swan Bitcoin, where I work now, and do a various uh, group of different marketing activities there. And Swan is just an easy way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. So you just set a plan buy $50 a week or $100 a month or whatever and connect your bank account and we just auto buy the Bitcoin for you. And then you can auto withdraw into your cold storage. So sort of a set it and forget it model. And regarding Bitcoin stuff, uh, I'm also a part time mycologist or amateur mycologist, meaning I'm really into mushrooms and fungi. And so wrote my first article on Bitcoin uh, comparing it to mycelium. And at the time, I was not so confident that the Bitcoin community would buy this, uh, this wacky idea. And then I saw Dan Held's planting Bitcoin series. And I said, okay, there's a little appetite for this, this uh, strange, strange path into Bitcoin. And I actually sent the, the first draft to Dan, who edited it and helped me polish it up and get it marketed. And so um, big thanks to Dan for pushing that one across the line. And yeah, I'm super pumped to have this conversation. I think that may actually be where the idea and the genesis of the idea for me to put this together came from, because I think Brandon, uh, I had read your stuff before I had read Dan's stuff. And I think I remember always seeing at the bottom, like a thank you or a reference to Dan's work and to Dan. And maybe that's, maybe that's where it, it, it conjured up in my head. Um, 
Brandon, I'd love to just get your thoughts on what the response has been to your most recent piece. And if you intentionally kind of held it back uh, until the current time where it seems um, even more prescient than it would have been just a few months ago. Yeah, good question. So I, I did not intentionally wait until, you know, the week, like two weeks ago, whenever I dropped it, I, I first read the book about six to eight months ago. And my original thesis was Bitcoin is the fifth turning and it's essentially going to break this generational cycle that we keep finding ourselves in. Uh, but then I just spent so much more time with the material and realized that um, Bitcoin's just one piece of the puzzle. And, and this fourth turning cycle is a very deep emergent human thing. And so um, timing just got lucky that we're in the biggest shitstorm we can imagine right now. And so um, lots of people are talking about the fourth turning and that I would be lying if I didn't say that motivation helped me get it across the line. Um, it's 10,000 words. It took a lot to get that one over. Um, but yeah, timing was right on that one. <laughs> We're in it. And what's been some of the feedback you've gotten from it? Because, you know, it, it's a great piece. And the fourth turning, the thesis, I haven't read the book, but I, you know, from your article, I got kind of got the gist. Um, it, it's an interesting thesis, but there are a lot of assumptions in there and stuff. Like, one, I'm interested in, in kind of how they came to identify the different traits that, that you reference in your article that happened during each successive turning. And also, you know, what's, uh, what's been the, the mycelium one got a lot of great feedback, as you said, what's been the feedback on this one? Yeah, so regarding the fourth turning, so it was written by two demographers who spent a uh, combined like 30, 40 years studying this type of thing. They joined forces and realized, wow, there's a lot of patterns in society. You know, we sort of think time's linear, but really we keep seeing this repetitive pattern. And so in the book, in the essay, you can kind of see these different archetypes. And what I would say is if you, if you go knee deep or ankle deep into the material, it's, it kind of sounds like astrology where you don't really buy it. Uh, but the deeper you go, it's actually become a lens that I, I can't help but see the world every day now. Um, the, it's just the most human emergent things. Like for example, um, everybody born at the same time more or less has the same historical context to their upbringing. And that sort of solidifies a generation with defined characteristics. And they're young. Then they grow up into coming of age or you know, early adulthood. And now they sort of push back on history and start to change history. And a new generation comes in and gets imprinted. And that cycle just continues. And my perspective now is that it shouldn't work. Right. It feels weird, but it, it does work. And so I'm not sure what it speaks to besides just humans organize in an emergent way in a society. And we just can't help but do this. Um, and so in terms of feedback, I would say the mycelium one was more exciting for me to publish because I was a, a nobody on Twitter. And then all of a sudden people are paying attention, which felt good. And then I get to wrestle with these ideas. Um, but this one had a lot of uh, a lot of love as well. And I'll be on a bunch of shows coming up here discussing it and um, yeah, I, I think it's well received. I bet there's a, a certain percentage of people who just don't buy the thesis and they see it kind of as this doom and gloom thing. But these periods, these fourth turnings where we essentially re-architect the external world, think uh, politics, economics, social stuff, all that stuff gets torn down and rebuilt every 90 years. And so that sounds like a bad doom and gloom thing, but it's actually necessary. We need to clear out all the brush so we can have some new growth. You essentially tilt the game board back to the young people because right now young people are not optimistic. There's no economic prospects. Things are pretty bleak. 
And so we're in that period where um, the pendulum swings towards equality, which also means less liberty, which is pretty scary. Um, and so I see Bitcoin as sort of an opposing force um, to the, the period that's coming. And if you look back through history, previous fourth turnings were World War II, uh, the Civil War, the American Revolution, etc. And those happen roughly every 80 to 90 years. And we're in that period now. And as far as I can tell, we're, it's very, very uh, clear that it's happening just like previous times. Yeah. And you make kind of, you, you, you make it clear in the book that it needn't necessarily be, uh, not cat catastrophic is the wrong word, but, you know, it, it, damaging or destructive. Like, you know, you say that it can take on different sort of uh, characteristics and natures. And I think you're making the case in this article that because of Bitcoin, that it, you know, it, that probably increases the likelihood that it'll be less destructive than in previous eras. Um, just current thoughts on, on, I know when we talk about, we've talked about this a million times before, but you know, how do you, if you, now that that's your worldview and, and actually the, one of the reasons why I love, I like both your work is because I think analogy can be so helpful in its predictive capacity if the analogy is apt. And that's almost part of the motivation why we make them, right? Because if we see these different characteristics across domains line up, then we can carry over some of our insights from one domain into another and, you know, to use for beneficial purposes for insight or, or for planning or prediction or whatever. So with that new lens um, that, that you claim to be seeing the world through, how do you see uh, the next, I guess, 10 years? Because you, you say in the piece that 2030 will be the, the, the end of the period of the fourth turning. How do you see uh, this playing out? Yeah, so typically this 90 year cycle is broken into four defined generations and each generation you can call a turning or a mood. And so uh, based on this analysis, the 2008-2009 global financial crisis kicked off the fourth turning. So that transitioned to a period where um, our institutions are garbage, society is going down, moral decay, etc. Um, however, now all of a sudden we realize that we do need these institutions to keep society going. And so we're in a period where our supply of order, so our institutions are bad, supply of order is low, but the demand of order is rising really quickly. So we want to start to rebuild our institutions. And the analog here would be the end of the late the 1930s, early 1940s. So um, right before World War II, we have the New Deal, um, we go full-blown Keynesianism, deficit spending, and then World War II happens, which is the crisis that I feel is coming, doesn't necessarily need to be war. Um, and then we all of a sudden rebuild everything. At the end of World War II, it's the UN, it's World Bank, IMF, NATO, um, Bretton Woods, all these things, the world was entirely different. And so we're about halfway through, or maybe about 10 years to go before the fourth turning ends. And we need some sort of a conflict. It doesn't need to be war, it could be something else. But what needs to happen is, the masses. We need to motivate all the people in the world or a large majority to actually make these huge changes. And historically, war is the most unifying force. And so that's what gets people to make a change. And right now, I think the options are COVID. However, I don't think it's big enough. I think it's actually making, we're making ourselves more divided. Um, we could have a total war, something with China, could have a black swan that we can't predict, or we could have a civil war in America. And sadly, I think that that's the most likely outcome at this point. It already feels that way. There's a lot of stats that show um, we're trending in that direction. And so 
to me, that's the most likely outcome probably within the next five years. And that would be the, the climax of the crisis and then sort of a three to five year uh, trending into a, a new cycle where we rebuild. And so that's what I see. I think Bitcoin is scary, or I mean, is, uh, is potentially helpful in the scary situation because Bitcoin's sort of a life raft. You can get off the burning, sinking Titanic and minimize damage at the individual level and also at the state level, right? Individuals can move their savings over to Bitcoin. You can see nation states putting some savings into Bitcoin. So theoretically, there's a little bit less conflict because there's a little bit less desperation in the world. So that's kind of how I see that. And if we want to, you know, when we look at history, a lot of times we try to find these patterns that emerge. Humans are built to identify patterns. Uh, we use that in, in back through our evolution uh, to identify whether it be like migrational patterns of animals or how to track them or something repetitive that we could repeat or some sort of mechanism to reduce work. You know, pattern matching is like an innate human trait. And so we look at history through that lens of trying to find patterns. That's why I like the saying that history doesn't rhyme, but it repeats, or history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Because I think that's very, very true. Like human behavior doesn't change no matter how much technology we layer on, no matter how many clothes we put on, there are different type of clothes or types of vehicles that we use, horses versus cars. Humans are still the same species. We didn't change that much. There's not that much evolution that occurs in 200 years. So I do like, you know, with these, uh, like the fourth turning, for example, where they identify some clear catalyst for change and how this implements like a new wave or cycle of, of uh, civilization or uh, destruction and creation. I do also think that like each, each period is so unique that it's almost impossible to extract much meaningful insights from history. We can extract the core root of why humans do things, but I think it's each circumstance is so unique, it's very hard to determine that. Um, I do think as well that like in this circumstance, we are facing, I would consider one of our greatest challenges. Um, we have an enormous amount of overreach by the federal government and state governments. I mean, to an extent, I think that's unfathomable to the founding fathers of the United States. Um, reaching into every single aspect of my life, transportation, food, communication, every single one is regulated and controlled. And then we're also seeing the rise of like central bank digital currencies. This is not a good thing for the consumer. Central bank digital currencies means absolute control over the entire economy, which is insane. I mean, this is far past 1984 dystopian levels. I'm extremely pessimistic about what this represents for humanity. Uh, we're also seeing platforms like Twitter start to censor folks. Well, it's all great in theory until you get a request to censor someone that you know is, is telling the truth. Or what happens when 99% of economists say that Bitcoiners should be censored because we're fake news or something, right? Like we are, we are the alternative financial system. We are not at all, um, you know, believed to be rational. <laughs> like Bitcoiners are widely perceived as like the crazy people and we're actually, we're not the crazy ones everyone else is. And so I'm seeing civilization hang on this very, very terrible precipice. And I think Bitcoin to me represents the only salvation out of it. It's sort of like, um, I don't know if you guys have read the Foundation series, but it feels like a, a Harry Seldon moment where Harry Seldon calculates that civilization will collapse and sees it coming, which we all kind of sense that something will change dramatically. Maybe not civilization collapsing, but a big loss of freedoms or control, et cetera. 
he sees this coming and he sets up um, uh, Encyclopedia, I think it's, I forget what it's called, it's like Encyclopedia Galactica. So it's like an encyclopedia on two ends of the universe or two ends of the galaxy. And by doing that, he can reduce the period of chaos from 10,000 years down to a thousand. And Bitcoin, I think that's, that's what Bitcoin represents is it's, it won't 100% fix the problem, but it'll reduce the duration and severity of the issue. Um, and if Bitcoin had been around long enough before, it might have prevented it from ever happening. So it might pre it'll prevent it in the future. But right now, I think Bitcoin has been accepted at exactly the right moment. And it's a little bit strange. Sometimes I'm, I'm, not, a, <clears throat> I'm not a spiritual or religious person, but sometimes it feels very odd that Bitcoin was created and survived and is around for, for example, coronavirus, a once in a hundred year event. Bitcoin, if this had happened in 2010, it would have been too early. Bitcoin was very, very new. Not a lot of infrastructure had been built. If it had happened later, maybe it wouldn't have been the catalyst moment for Bitcoin to explode from obscurity to becoming accepted by nearly everyone. Maybe this is the moment where Bitcoin goes through a super cycle and it goes from 10,000 to a million and largely you know, ha will have completed part of its journey along becoming a gold 2.0. It seems very serendipitous that Bitcoin is here to save us during this moment of, I would say, probably one of the worst moments in human history in terms of, of oppression of human, of human people. I would say it, almost worse than World War II in a way. It's not about the human lives, it's about control. Like we're starting to see a system where you can't escape to Switzerland. You can't escape to another country. It's all controlled by these internet, these internet companies that are these giant conglomerates. And then those are controlled by China and, and Russia and the US. And so we're starting to see a world that's like very, very scary. It's like, yeah, it's sort of like you see these two, it's not just one axis of evil or like one evil empire, it's every single state combined into the same thing, which is, I think a pretty, pretty, pretty scary moment. Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed, well, throughout the last several years, but it's, it's obviously or it seems to be more prevalent th this year is um, there seems to be kind of less and less um, reverence for the idea of absolute truth. You know, we, we, we seem to exist. We, it's called in many, t many different uh, labels, but like a relativism of, of certain kind when, when dealing with a number of different things. And, you know, I think maybe in the past uh, religion, kind of establish a foundation of absoluteness and that was kind of the core of the things that you know are not questioned and there's some benefit in having things that are not questioned and then coinciding with that and I, I would say improving upon and adding to that would be the notion of individual rights you know which in, in America's founding were enshrined in, in possibly the best way they had been up to that point where you know the sovereignty of the individual was at least attempted to be one of those kind of absolute bedrocks so that the, the this type of you know twisting the truth and these relative uh, ideas and subjective truths weren't allowed to run so rampant but now we're in a, an environment where our perception is is guided so much damn what you were saying about kind of the, the digital world in which we increasingly interact and you know there's always going to be a bias and let's just, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, we, we realize that we realize that what we're seeing is, 
is not the randomness of the universe. There's intent behind uh, what we're seeing and what we're being shown and the information that we're consuming as, as hard as we may try to uh, curate it for ourselves. But in an environment like that, where your perception is more controlled and more controlled, I would think that having those absolutes is even more important. And we exist in a time when those absolutes are being either torn down or disregarded. So in, in the religious sense, in some cases, and perhaps even rationally disregarded, although I think there's a lot of uh, interesting wisdom and insight to be gained from uh, that domain. And then, you know, less rationally or more emotionally disregarded in terms of rights and freedoms, you know, uh, in service to collectivist ideas and, kind of, and, and doing away with the, the sovereign rights of an individual, let's say. So I think in that environment where the abs kind of the, the bedrock is less strong or is, is done away with, and the, the things that cloud your perception or that guide your perception or would seek to co-op your perception are ev ever more present than they've, they've ever been and getting worse, I think that is you know, extremely fertile soil for mass confusion, mass delusion, you know, emotional responses and, you know, and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of turmoil. And what I wanted to ask both of you was, um, Brandon, you make reference to that, uh, old saying in the piece, weak men create hard times, hard times, create strong men, strong men, create good times, good times, create good men or good times, create weak men. And does that kind of suggest that if this, if you're correct, like if this is kind of, this cycle is a part of our human nature, um, that it just, it's kind of unavoidably repeats itself because we, we become complacent and then we, we have to conjure our resources to uh, get ourselves out of that difficult situation that our complacency led to. And, you know, um, is it always, does it always mean that we're gonna have to encounter really strong or really hard times? Because it may, you know, it, I'd like to think that, you know, Bitcoin is a bit of a savior here. And I think it very, is very, very helpful. But to your point, will we, is it possible to shift from, let's say, the fourth turning to, you know, starting the cycle again in the first without kind of exceedingly hard times? And if so, does it, does it really matter the, the tools you have at your disposal to, for the transition? I mean, it's got to be hard by definition. It's got to be the hard time that creates the strong men and women that create the good times again. So like is, is hoping that the transition is not hard, kind of a, you know, uh, the wrong way to approach it. Yeah. Good question. So a couple things on the list here, um, individual versus collectivism, the religion point, and then is it sort of just futile to assume that we can overcome the cycle of having a hard time? And my short answer on hard times is that it's, it's inevitable and it doesn't necessarily need to have the same magnitude as we're seeing today, right? We can have lesser hard times, so we have to have them. And my belief is that that comes from human nature, which is that we don't act unless we need to. Um, and I think that's just how we're built. And so now is the point where we realize that we need to rebuild and it's gotten so bad that we're actually willing to do something about it. And in terms of individual versus collectivism, I think that's sort of the fulcrum of the next decade. And in the same way as we had communist, communism versus capitalism in the, in the 30s and 40s, um, the same thing's happening right now. It's just a little bit different. It's more about the external world and culture. 
And so the millennial generation are the, the hero archetype, which is orderly and collectivist. And so when we come up, when we're coming of age now, starting to gain a little bit more power, we want community, we want collectivism at the expense of equality or at the expense of freedom or liberty. And so you're thinking about big tech, big tech is all millennial run, millennial run, and um, they grew on the backs of millennials who are willing to put everything out there. We're all even, everyone has a Facebook page, et cetera. And so I see big tech is just the overgrowth of millennial values, which is hero archetype, which is a collectivist. Um, and if we allow that to go too far, we have what happened in Nazi Germany, extremely orderly, we're all on the same team, but it goes too far. And so the, the trick here is to allow some collectivism. We, we do need some because when we have more collectivism, equality will increase. And we're at a period now where economically we have really wide gaps. And if that continues, the people who don't have anything will have incentive to fight back and burn the whole world down. And so we're at a period where the game's gonna be leveled, um, taxes are gonna be taken from wealthy people, governments are gonna be reached into our pockets. That's the incentive. And Bitcoin sort of is a, is a stalwart against that. It's actually a tool to prevent overreach. And it also prevents the millennial generation or collectivism from getting too strong. And so I think that's sort of the challenge here is we're gonna give up some freedoms, whether we like it or not, and it'll be backstopped by Bitcoin. And, I, and I'm, I'm not concerned long-term if Bitcoin survives, I think we have a good shot to not have a dystopian future with behavioral economic, central bank, digital currency type vision. Um, I'm not sure though. And that's kind of what I'm watching. And the last point on religion, um, so there's inequality in the world, it's natural. Some people are gifted and some people work hard, some people are lucky. So there's always gonna be inequality, we cannot avoid that. And what happens is the people who don't perform well, whether they end up with poverty or they feel defeated or whatever, um, they need something to, they need some hope. And religion subs in as this supernatural hope as an alternative to despair. And so it's actually a really useful function in society, whether or not you believe in it or not. Um, it has been very useful as holding us together. And if we don't have that hope, which I would argue now where it's probably the least religious point in Western history. So we don't have that hope. And if you don't have hope, um, utopia is a direct substitute. And so as we go into this class warfare period, um, we either go back to a religion or something that gives us hope, or we, we cling to utopia, which means communism. And so, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty scary, volatile point. And to Dan's point, it's shocking and so incredibly fortunate that Bitcoin was born at the dawn of the fourth turning, right when we needed it most. The timing of when it was planted and the soil and, and all that beautiful analogy. It couldn't be more apt. And if we didn't have it, I would be pretty scared right now. Oh my God. I, I pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I think we'd all be in a really bad spot. I mean, it's, it would be difficult to look out on the world and have hope. You know, I know this, this, this theme that, that keeps getting being brought up these days, but it's, it's so apt because I, I have a feeling of optimism and energy and, and uh, enthusiasm and hope for the future because Bitcoin exists. But if it didn't, the forces, um, at play here would it would be difficult to overcome them to to get a proper perspective on you know building uh, the type of life and the type of world that that you would want so yeah I, I couldn't agree more and to the point about when bitcoin emerged and how it emerged and dan you go into this um or you both do in your pieces 
like it's almost it's it's hard not to see it in an increasingly sort of mythical perspective you know it's got all the elements of such a good you know genesis story myth story you know from how it was launched who launched it the the founder the kind of the the moral uh aspects of the founder and how they treated it like it and it and every step of the way and i know you know this is a bit of a far out uh, observation but it even seems to and maybe this is because we place so much meaning in it but it seems to increase uh the ser- like the serendipity in in your life or maybe you 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 notice more the coincidences but it seems to be almost like a a machine that conjures uh, those sorts of things, you know, like just more coincidence, more serendipity. You kind of see, not only do you see things more clearly, but you, I don't know, I'm having a difficult time articulating it, but it just, it, it, it brings a mythical element almost to other areas just beyond its own story and its own evolution and foundation. And, you know, that's one of those wacky things about it that we probably won't understand for a long, long time. Yeah, I think, you know, luck as best defined as I think it's best defined is preparation meeting opportunity. I think the timing was serendipitous because all of these were, all these components of Bitcoin had been worked on for so long. All of the different pieces of its genetic code had been previously built. You got Adam Back, Hal Finney, Wei Dai. They were all building these different parts of this organism, this new species of money. And Satoshi was really more of like, he Frankensteined it all together. He took all that genetic code and put it together into the first, first organism, the first species of money, of, digi- of digital cryptocurrency, the first species that could survive on the operating table. Everyone before that had died. They had Frankensteined a few pieces of DNA, they got the shock paddles, shocked it alive, and it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't come alive. Satoshi figured out all of the elements necessary to create it. And what was so amazing too, is he got it all right. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about like, what if the halving cycles are every two years? Maybe there weren't, maybe, maybe these boom bust cycles happened every two years and there wasn't enough time to build companies in between. What if they were too long? What if they were every 10 years and people just forgot about Bitcoin because it would take too long to create these, these supply shock scenarios that in, that induce demand, which create another bubble, which create awareness. A lot of it was very serendipitous. Um, and, you know, I think like <laughs> when you look at all of the intricate components, I, I use the uh, species anal- analogy of looking at Bitcoin as like this living organism. Another way to think about it as well is, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Apollo 11. It came out, I think last year or two years ago. It's a documentary but it's actually not really a documentary. It feels more like a drama. It's like Apollo 13 combined with Interstellar in terms of intensity. So the soundtrack is super intense, but they took original NASA footage and restored it into 4K. So it looks incredible. So it doesn't feel dated. It feels like you're there. And it was a beautiful, I watched it two times in theaters. I'm a big movie buff. And it was that good to where I like, I actually teared up the first time with the, with the rocket launch. Because what they captured was the immense precision and, and sophistication required to ensure that the rocket is launched properly. Bitcoin should have blown up on the, on the launch pad. It should have blown up 100 feet off the ground. It should have blown up here, here, and here, but it didn't. And now we're on the way to the moon. We've gotten out of Earth's orbit. We're on the way to the moon. And it's a pretty fucking crazy miracle that we did. 
Because I mean, like in 2017, the last bull run, we had a civil war. I mean, that was a that was a lot of anxiety for myself during that time period, where it's brother against brother. And, you know, there's large corporations like Coinbase, like actively siding with uh, the Bcash community, you know, to see stuff like that, that was, that was pretty intense. Bitcoin survived that, which was incredible. But yet Apollo 11, that they captured the enormity of the challenge. They, and they saw how the whole world was watching. You know, they, they scan over 100,000 people sitting on top of, sitting out by their cars to watch the rocket launch. They pan over hundreds of computers in a, a man behind each computer looking at different printouts in the command center. And then they, they show the, the vehicle to move the Saturn V rocket and how big the, the wheels are compared to the size of the person. And all of these things had to go right. <laughs> Every single piece had to go right. If there was a piece of dust inside the computer that would have thrown something off, it could have exploded. And so to see Bitcoin make it this far, it was just, I, I think the people don't respect how much had to go right. Um, and that's why I, I believe that Bitcoin is the only chance we have. I think if Bitcoin dies, every other cryptocurrency would have a far less chance of succeeding. I don't think a new shelling point would, would occur around another cryptocurrency. Bitcoin isn't just an idea. It's, or Bitcoin isn't just a cryptocurrency. It's, it's an idea and a belief. All the Bitcoiners who believe in Bitcoin believe in its fundamental properties. And there's no other coin that has that. Sorry, I went off on a little tangent there. I think we're no, no, a little bit away from the plant analogy. <laughs> no, not at all. So what, it, you know, looking at it that way, looking back at 2017 and what happened then, and, and because this is all part of the ongoing story of Bitcoin and, you know, either from uh, using it as from an analogy point of view or just looking at its own history. I mean, what do you think is on the horizon in terms of threats or challenges? Because there's been a lot of tailwinds recently, obviously, you know, things are, it's been pretty smooth sailing. Um, you know, what, uh, what do you think are things that need to be, you know, planned for, or we need to watch out for? Well, that's what's cool about Bitcoin is we don't even need to upgrade it for it to win. It just has to keep going. Right. It's, uh, it's the very, that's why I love Bitcoin as an investment. It's a phenomenal one. There's very little operational risk. If you invest in a share of Coinbase or Kraken, well, you got a lot of operational risk. You have to rely on folks like myself and others executing in the roles in beating out the competition. With Bitcoin, it's already kind of won against its competition. It merely has to keep surviving. And it's so, the primitive nature of the protocol is so beautifully simple. And like, for example, like the difficulty adjustment and its mechanisms are so, uh, they've been so seasoned and, and anti-fragile due to all of the intensity that's been it's been subjective to subjected to that i think bitcoin is largely out of the you know it's gotten past that moment where i think you know destruction was likely it's it's on the way to the moon it got out of the orbit where a lot of the accidents happened maybe on the way to get into orbit um i certainly think that like the biggest biggest threat in the future of course is states states will look at bitcoin possibly with fear, more likely, yeah, likely with fear and choose to either embrace it or reject it. And if they choose to reject it, that will be Bitcoin's ultimate challenge. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard the term, uh, the great filtering event, but there's an idea that civilization, like uh, advanced civilizations are very rare in the universe and that there's a great filter event that occurs that explains why we don't see Star Wars spaceships rolling around the, the galaxy. And it's that most civilizations don't pass this moment or most, most Earths don't pass this moment. And I think that moment for cryptocurrencies will be the moment where they face states, where they face true, like truly why decentralization is valuable. 
before states didn't really care as much and these different cryptocurrencies could tweak parameters and add centralization like having a founding creator still around or have people choose the inflation rate as a as a dev committee you know these things i think uh represented like the lax nature of enforcement by governments but when governments really crack down bitcoin is one of the only ones that truly prioritize decentralization on every single level so i think that'll be kind of the great the great challenge the great the final boss to beat will be states um so yeah it, there's a lot to unpack there though well, I'd love to add. Yeah, go for it. I was just going to say, um, I more or less agree with everything Dan said. And I believe that the zero to one moment was by far the hardest challenge Bitcoin will ever face. And so I, I think we're past that. Um, but I also would be, you know, I think it's fair to say that we Bitcoin's been in peacetime. We've been, it's only been around in a 10 year bull market. Um, nobody gave a shit about it until now. And so this is good for Bitcoin because it had a chance to uh, become hardened in, in sort of a, a more of a sandbox environment. It didn't have the state worrying about things at that point. Although, yeah, of course, it's been attacked and it's gotten stronger and whatever. Um, but I think the real challenges from the future uh, after zero to one, the next decade didn't matter. Now is when it really matters. Um, that's what I honestly believe. I think S2X was uh, probably the biggest challenge. Um, but really what's going to happen now is we have to figure out a way to make Bitcoin fit into the regulatory framework. And whether that's through an attack from the state and then a, a submission or some sort of a, here you go, you're fine Bitcoin, just kind of like the way that gold's accepted as an external money. I'm not sure of the approach, but we do need to find a way for society to accept it from the state level. And what I'm most optimistic about is that we do have cyber hornets all around the world who adopt this thing and they're ideologically motivated to rearrange their life to make this thing succeed. And I think that that's Bitcoin's biggest strength. Um, and if we don't have that, there's absolutely no way we're going to make it through the great filter, as Dan said, of a state level attack. And if, you, if, you, if you're into another cryptocurrency, non-Bitcoin, and you believe in this thing, ask yourself, does it have a feasible chance to get through the great filter of a nation state attack? And if you don't think that it's even feasible, then there's no point in investing an ounce of energy into that network because it has no chance. You might play in you know, the happy-go-lucky honeymoon period, but when push comes to shove, when the technology is needed, you will fail. So stop wasting your energy and come join our only chance. And I know Dan has a point he's been looking to make. Well, it's funny because in, you know, you have these uh, Silicon Valley folks, which I live in San Francisco and I've been out here for seven years. They don't understand Bitcoin and they'll be like, oh, you should diversify. And it's like, you know, I'm, look, I'm a libertarian. Buy whatever you'd like. And so um, I'm free for people. People are free to do that. But a lot of people assume that di diversification equals less risk. But actually in cryptocurrencies, it's the opposite because there would be less security spend which is the fundamental core way that these chains are protected is the game theoretic attack vector of like how much money is the attacker willing to burn. So the security spend, the amount of money in each block reward represents that. So if you have more layer one chains, there's less, uh, there's less uh, block reward, less, less value being distributed to the miners uh, for versus like one or two chains. Um, and we've seen that like Ethereum and Bitcoin are the only two chains that have accrued any sort of demand for, uh, to be included into the block space. Um, for example, like if we look at fees on Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're the only ones that are meaningful. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's, it's critically important that there is a, is a 
you know, I think the Bitcoiners have been this resilient core ethos, not just of Bitcoin, it represents something larger. Bitcoiners defend Bitcoin, but to believe in Bitcoin, you have to have base principles that I think are, are very much rooted in libertarian ideology. Um, I think it's, 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 this, is a, this is a revolution of morals in a way of like, these are, these are base principles of how to live, which is about freedom. Like we, you can do whatever you'd like. You know, that's the whole basis of this. Um, there's one other point I wanted to make too, which is that I've had some dates with the debates with more privacy oriented folks, whether that be Bitcoiners or Monero and Zcash uh, people on Twitter. And oftentimes they view privacy as the way to defeat the state. So how does Bitcoin survive that great filter? They're like, we go underground. We live in some bunkers. We all use coin joins and open dimes, and that's how we defeat the state. I agree, we should, we should increase privacy. We should encourage and use and be private as much as possible. That is 100% congruent with my beliefs. However, I don't believe that's how you defeat a state. If you're a small marginalized group that can be like isolated and hunted down, then that's, that's not how you survive. I view survival as um, Bitcoin's number go up technology, that increases the number of hodlers that hold Bitcoin in certain Western countries, Western countries and Eastern countries, but the countries that have a majority of the wealth in the world. The more that happens, the higher percentage of folks in that country that own Bitcoin, then it's less and less likely the state would attack it because they would be attacking, attacking their own constituency. It also means the politicians now who are incentivized based on getting voted in would be less and less likely to attack it too. So I view that as the way that Bitcoin survives the great filter event is network effect is the simple answer. Um, and yeah, I'll leave it back to you guys. Well, that, that's kind of where my mind was headed too, Dan. And I think like thinking about it adversarially, if, if the opponent, if the state was going to do something to stymie that, that level of integration and adoption and distribution, you would think it would happen soon because we appear to be on the precipice of a great deal of interest and recognition of NGU and recognition of Bitcoin's benefit as an asset, in particular in the macro landscape that we find ourselves in today. Um, that, you know, as has been said over the last few months, you know, every CFO or every CIO or every boardroom it at least has to be having this conversation now. Um, and one would think that over the next six, 12, 18 months, that means that the level of, you know, integration and distribution, you know, how many people or entities are holding Bitcoin is going to increase dramatically. And there's got to be a point there where, you know, kind of a point of no return, you know, it's, you know, going outside of the filter because, if you're in the hands of every Fortune 500 company and every family office, hedge fund, whatever, I mean, that basically is the government. That is the state, you know? So uh, will you have the political will to do anything about it at that, at that point? Right, we gotta make Bitcoin too big to fail. And you already listed everything. The corporations have it on the balance sheet. What are you gonna crash the stock market to attack this upstart currency? Pretty weird. That's like a jealous ex-girlfriend situation. <laughs> Even if people it's, just have a hundred dollars of Bitcoin, that's it. Now they've got skin in the game and they're involved. They're paying attention. They're paying attention. It's kind of funny. I've noticed in the eight years I've been in Bitcoin, it's whenever people hold Bitcoin that they finally get it. I've got a bunch of buddies and family members who never got into it because they never owned any. 
As soon as they own some though, they're texting me like, hey Dan, hey Dan, the price went up 20%, what, what's going on? And I'm like, well, we don't know, but you know, here's the narrative <laughs> and, and here's why, you know, Bitcoin is, this is the trajectory Bitcoin's going on and they start to care. So that's where I think that, that little skin in the game vote makes people care a little bit. And I've actually applied that same personal reasoning, which this is just a personal subjective, uh, pers- you know, something I perceived. I, I mean, it's just basically over 90% of my net worth in Bitcoin. So a, a little while ago, I was like, okay, well, maybe I should put a little bit into the stock market just so I'll pay attention. <laughs> and that's what I did. And now I actually open up Robinhood to look because I've got enough to like look at it and be like, oh, okay. So, oh, the Fed did this today. And now prices are doing this. Or for example, the vaccine came out today. Helps me orient my perspective around Bitcoin because all I used to look at before was Bitcoin. And now I put a little bit of money, a tiny bit of money in other stuff just so I'll pay attention. And are you happy with the results of paying attention? Like, do you like that your attention is now drawn to that domain? It gives me a better perspective. I understand that Bitcoin doesn't move in isolation. So now I'm able to see how like the Fed's money printing policies and and the the government's fiscal policies are impacting uh, traditional U.S. equities. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but like AMC is up 50% today. I'm like, I don't care if a vaccine comes out tomorrow. AMC as a theater is still dead as a business. Like, so when you look at the stonk market, <laughs> you get a good idea of how distorted asset prices have gotten. I mean, it's insane. The prices are so distorted. So I view it as it, it giving me better perspective on Bitcoin rather than me being distracted from Bitcoin. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's amazing about when you start to own it, as you say, um, and I don't know if there's, well, I guess it's because of what's gone on this year, but the 20, the people that got in in 2020 really seemed to go, you know, hard and fast down the rabbit hole. I, I did a pod with a couple of noobs and, and we all know of uh, the Giga Chad who got in this year and how, how quickly he's fallen down the rabbit hole. But it like, I feel like as, when you have that skin in the game, it's not just that you recognize the benefits as an asset and the returns that you expect to yield from making an allocation, but you, you know, you start reading the Brandon Quidams, the Dan Helds, the Robert Breedloves, the Parker Lewis's, you know, and it, it all starts to coalesce into a clearer uh, image for yourself and a under, clearer understanding. And when that begins to happen, that's when we start to see the transformation in perspective. That's when we start to see the transformation in behavior. And so I really think that as much as the, you know, having it in enough people's hands, having so much, so many people with so much skin in the game, that's going to make it hard for a state actor to do anything to, you know, uh, that would have negative effects on such a broad base of people, both, you know, up in the power structure and, and everywhere below. But I actually think it's, it, it has a transformative effect as well. So that those people that are holding it, that are, that do have a lot of, you know, status and power and influence, I think their perspective on things will begin to change. Brandon, we were talking about, you know, this, the, the millennial generation and their, their sort of you know, preference or leaning toward collectivist ideas. And I see that all the time. I mean, I have friends, I've, conversations with friends all the time and yeah i hear about the you know the ills of capitalism and that we need to be more egalitarian and you know most of them haven't really put that much time into fleshing out those ideas and taking them to their logical conclusion but nevertheless they're they're quite prevalent and i think 
if they were to spread and proliferate, that would lead to worse and worse outcomes. But the fact that getting involved in this stuff and having that skin in the game and being excited by NGU and then naturally wanting to understand more about all this and reading all the stuff about it, it dramatically affects your perception about all of that stuff. And you become a different person philosophically. You become a different person you know, in, in the way you orient yourself. You become a different person in the way you think about individual sovereignty and economics and you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that's what's really encouraging. I mean, it's not just that they have skin in the game and they're gonna to wanna to protect their investment, but it's that it, it's like a virus. Like if you, if you hold Bitcoin, sure, you, you, know, you make some money and do whatever, but it, it's, it's, it has a high likelihood of impacting your perception and not just being another asset in your portfolio. And that's super encouraging because NGU is gonna spread it far and wide, but it's, you know, the Trojan horse is how it tweaks your mind, you know, the splinter in your mind. Totally agree. I, uh, sorry, Brandon, if you want to hop in, I, I feel like I've been kind of, uh, you want to go ahead and go and then I'll-, I'll No, no, a few minutes. I'll just make a, sh a quick point on 2020. And the thing with 2020 is that it's a wake up call. From 2010 to 2020, absolutely nothing happened. Everybody fell asleep. Then all of a sudden, March 2020, everyone wakes up from the slender. They look around and they go, wait a minute, what matters in my life? Who are my actual friends? Those are the people I talked to during quarantine. How's my family doing? Okay, who's my extended, my, my chosen family? How are they doing? Great, what's my money doing? Now all of a sudden my job's insecure. I see people having all these problems. And so that's not just on the individual level. That also happens at the corporate level with the Michael Saylors reevaluating. This is happening at the nation state level. They're mining Bitcoin. They're trying to get around sanctions. So this, this catalyst really, really woke everybody up. And if you put that through Bitcoin's lens, now all of a sudden the content creators are getting a little shine here because they're making the on-ramp easier and the individuals actually have a need for Bitcoin. Uh, if, you're, if you were in the United States, do you have a need for Bitcoin besides making money? Not really. But now all of a sudden facing QE, Infinity, UBI, MMT, whatever we're gonna call this next phase, your savings account is, is directly being threatened. And so in my, in my personal life, I'm onboarding people every week and I'm not even trying that hard. And I could try really hard two years ago and onboard almost no one. And so obviously that, that's, that's shifted. We're seeing an acceleration of adoption. Um, and I don't know who's selling, right? If you look at HODL waves, last I checked it was 62 or 63% of UTXOs haven't moved in a year. And that number is rising. And so there's gonna be the ultimate short squeeze coming here and <laughs> it's gonna get volatile. And I'm optimistic with what you're saying about how the mind virus infiltrates you. I forgot the meme, but like I came for the number go up and I stayed for the revolution. There's various iterations on that, but it's true. And it also speaks to the fact that individuals have no meaning in our lives right now. Young people do. We don't go through these coming of age tales. We never really become an adult. We're sort of just like kids that are 40. And that sort of speaks to the, the weak men create bad times type philosophy. And I think what Bitcoin does, is it gives young people purpose something larger than themselves, which is that same hope that religion subs into. And that's why we're seeing all these narratives. That's why you see the ideological battles, the holy wars, etc. Um, and that's extremely optimistic from, uh, I think Bitcoin is good for the, the, the future. And so here's an army of people willing to build a future that I can believe in. That's great. Um, and, and yeah, like, how can you not be optimistic about this? 
And I think too, like um, when people are looking for a revolution, they don't know exactly, I think Black Lives Matter, of course it's an important issue to tackle racial disparity. It's an important issue to dig into police brutality. I think these are hugely impactful issues, but I think that there was actually a bigger issue underneath the whole surface that manifested itself under that banner of Black Lives Matter. Again, those are very important issues and I don't want to minimize from those. However, I think the other issues were socioeconomic issues. We just had one of the largest like spikes in unemployment in human history. Or, uh, sorry, American history. I'm sure there's been more moments way back in middle, middle, middle uh, you know, uh, <laughs> medieval era and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think Black Lives Matter became a rallying cry for a multitude of different things. I, I can't go out to the streets and protest and be like, I'm part of faction number 1200, which is all dogs lives matter or uh, all I, I want to make this or that change happen. You know, you, you need a rallying cry that unifies everyone who feels that they have an issue. Um, back in the 1930s, we saw this. I'm not making an analogy to Black Lives Matter. This is a completely separate issue, just more of a, more of a revolution issue, just to just kind of cover how revolutions happen. Socialism and fascism in the 1930s, those, like, did those represent the multitude of opinion about political change that needed to occur? No. They were just like the broad categories that people could assign their struggles to. Um, and so again, Black Lives Matter, very important. Uh, but I think it, a lot of people are assigning their the student, like student loan debt and those socio, other socioeconomic problems and losing their job. They're, they're pinning that to that narrative. And that's where I think with Bitcoin, Bitcoin as number goes up, it's number goes, you know, it's a get rich quick scheme, you know, it's a disguised as a quick, get rich quick scheme, but it's actually a revolution underneath it. And once people find that, it gives them purpose in life, like Brandon said. And I think with, with Bitcoin too, it's my, my hope for humanity is that like we, we <laughs> consumers don't care about their privacy. That's fucking bullshit. Who runs a mobile VPN app on their phone? Very few people. As my, even us here, I'm, I didn't do it all last week. I turned it off a couple of times. Like you have to take that step times a hundred to be truly private. Like if you really want to be private, there's a huge amount of steps you have to take. Consumers consistently show the, that they're going to choose the easiest option. My last bastion of hope of, of that change will occur is that humans will choose to preserve their wealth and they'll choose to preserve it with Bitcoin. And once they do that, then that changes their whole mindset towards everything else. So I'm hoping that mind virus, that, that Bitcoin, once, once they choose to defend their wealth and they're like, wait a second, why are you trying to take your, my wealth away from me? Then they're going to start to question everything else around privacy, um, police brutality, racial disparities, everything else will hopefully become clearer under that Bitcoin lens. I think that's exactly what's happening. I mean, I know there's obviously a lot of cases where maybe that transformation doesn't happen or doesn't happen so quickly, but I've seen a ton where it happens, you know, on a timescale of an individual's life extremely quickly, especially when you consider how ingrained a lot of people's behaviors and perspectives are, especially if you're, you know, 25, 30, 40 years of age. I mean, you know, if anyone's ever tried to go on a diet or integrate any new habit, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty hard. You, you, you really need to wrap your way, uh, your, mind around it in a different way so you can kind of reduce some of that friction and allow the will not to have to rely so much on willpower and even then you know change is difficult and to see uh almost effortless change come as a result of 
as you said, you know, storing your wealth in something like Bitcoin and all the attendant changes that happen almost as a result. And of course, being involved in such a, you know, vibrant vocal community is part of that as well. But just, you know, doing that, being a part of these ideas and then just watching, like, I got to say, prior to coming to Bitcoin, I, in my own personal life, I was already like doing a, managing my life fairly carefully from health to, you know, I just, I took great care and, and lived, you know, pretty intentionally for most of my life. But now what I'm noticing, and this is kind of hard to nail down, but I, like the changes that I'm feeling or noticing it, uh, within, they're happening automatically. And I'm just kind of, or more automatically than they used to. And I'm more just kind of sitting back and being like, do I want to lean into this change or, you know, try to wrestle with it to, to determine how, how valid or beneficial it might be. But it, it just, it really has, there's really a sense that whatever process is at play as a result of taking, I guess, your financial sovereignty in this way, it's igniting other almost autonomous, you know, uh, or passive processes within that are leading to beneficial or positive changes in other areas of your life. I know I talk about that issue a lot, but I just wanted to share my experience where it's unusual for me for it to be so unintentional. Like it, I'm, I'm noticing changes where I'm more of an observer than, you know, uh, the driving force behind it as I, in previous times. That's yeah, a subtle thing you're describing. Yeah. Sneaks in the, the Trojan horse. And yeah. I want to bring up a point I heard you mention on another podcast, John, which is that we talk about sound money and the, the potential positive impact it can have on society, both at the individual level and at the macro na nation state or group level. And the point you made was essentially that if those changes are going to occur, they're first going to occur in the individuals who adopt it now. And so what we expect to see on the society level, we should see right now at the Bitcoiner level. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we are seeing that. I, I can speak to that myself, you as well. Endless people have, have shared anecdotes like this. And so to me, there seems to be something to having a, a symbiotic relationship with Bitcoin. At an individual level, it gives you purpose, it gives you hope, optimism, long-term thinking, you're healthier, all of a sudden you eat only beef and eggshells, and you know, you care about truth and family, and <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of crazy things, some good, some maybe not good, we'll find out, um, but it's certainly having an impact at the individual level. And I think societies, if they adopt Bitcoin, the first ones that do, they're going to see that same effect occur. And I don't know if it will only occur because the individual adopts it and the individual is the only way that society can change or if a state can adopt it and sort of like trickle down change. I'm not really clear on that. Um, but it, it is clear that having a symbiotic relationship is beneficial for you. And yeah, that, that's exciting to me. Like it's much more than just an asset. People are like, don't be emotional about your investment. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, but I think Bitcoin represents something much more than that. And, and that is we see a problem in society and Bitcoin seems to be the, the best chance of fixing that. And so it's obviously more than an investment. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're fucking right about this, <laughs> this is the big, one of the biggest changes in human history, which I'm pretty damn confident. And I've put almost all my net worth into being potentially right about this. If we're right about this, I mean, this will be one of the, the, when this is written about in history books, it'll be written as one of the most monumental, you know, movements for human freedom. 
That's where I don't think some of these folks on like these other coins really realize what they're doing. Like, will history look kindly upon you if you tried to destroy Bitcoin? Like, will the, will these, there will be no monuments to you. There will be no <laughs> books. There'll be books written about it as a retrospective, but there'll be no like, oh, you're from that, you're from that name. Like you did something, you did something to facilitate this movement for human freedom. You know, like, I'm not going to put us on this sort of pedestal. We're all humans. We have our flaws. I've got numerous flaws and we all are just humans and we're trying to look out for ourselves. But at the same time, if we can look out for ourselves and help push forward, push forward humanity with freedom, uh, with Bitcoin as that rallying cry, I think that's incredible. And I mean, if we're right about this, this will be insane. Like this will totally change the dynamics of states in their populations or their, or their, you know, their citizens forever. I mean, one of the biggest changes in human history is so I, you know, it's not just an investment like Brandon said, people look at it like they're like, Oh, you got into Bitcoin early. Congratulations. You 10 X, hundred X, thousand X to your money. And I'm like, sure. But that's just the magnitude to which I was correct about this being a change. That's just a number on the scoreboard to be like, we saw this revolution happening and that's the representation of how early we saw it. That's how I think about it. It's more of a scoreboard of being correct. Um, because like as Nassim Taleb puts it, don't tell me what your opinion is, show me your portfolio. That's the yeah. only thing that matters at the end of the day. What, what did you put your money behind in terms of your opinion? But yeah, I think, I think Bitcoin as a revolution, it, that, that's why I'm so proud to work on this stuff. And that's why I feel so passionate about it where people are like, oh, who cares if this or that? Or oftentimes in my replies, People, if they see me debating Vitalik or Eric Voorhees, they'll be like, hey, parents, stop fighting. You know, like that's how they kind of see it. And for me, I'm like, well, these are important nuances that need to be fleshed out publicly on XYZ issue. So I, I couldn't be more passionate about Bitcoin because for me, it's not just about Bitcoin. It's not just about solving store of value. I mean, that's the core purpose of it, but it's the implications of solving that, that problem are so enormous that I feel like it's my life's work, right? Like what grander thing to work on in my life than that. Yeah. And what, what a gift to recognize that, you know, because look, we all come out into the world, whatever our backgrounds are, whatever our educations are, and you're confronted with the question. So what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do to give your life meaning and to enjoy it and all the rest of it? But you know, the meaning piece is, is, is the most fundamental. And to your point about the social, some of the social movements going on today and some of the reasons why, I mean, I think, that is at a big contributing factor too, because you're confronted with that question and absent, you know, a, a answer that you're really convicted about. Well, what's the, what's the flavor of the, the time? What, you know, what's the social movement du jour that, you know, affects me on, on some level that I get emotional about and we supplant uh, meaning with emotion. And then we get this, the, these, you know, vigorous, passionate uh, movements that spring up, but ultimately I think that don't necessarily, you know, that don't do much and they may have some social impact, but they don't do much to fill that, you know, meaning shaped hole in your heart sort of thing. And, you know, that's why a lot of people, if you come into uh, to Bitcoin, I mean, there's many things that you may find abrasive at the beginning, but one of them is, you know, how passionate and how kooky Bitcoiners can sound because here you were coming in thinking you heard about sharp ratios and limited supply and, you know, good balance, good way to balance your portfolio. And people are talking about, you know, preserving, 
your your will and your morality for eternity through you know some some internet protocol you know so it's it's weird i get it but i totally agree and i think that's why so many of us you know when you really start to see the big picture here one day and i completely agree i mean i talk about it all the time but if this thing persists you know if we're right then of course we could be wrong and of course it could fail but if neither of those things happen it's hard to imagine a bigger shift or transformation or moment in human history. And just the fact that we may be present for that and be contributing in some minor way is super exciting. But the reason why I said, before, you know, right off after you finished, what a gift is just because um, to have meaning in your life and there, obviously there's many sources of meaning family and children and, and love and things like that but to have it be so apparent and so obvious and once you identify it you almost can't help but put everything into it and i'm not just just talking about your financial resources but you know if you're, if you're right you're probably compelled to do that too but your time and your intellect and your relationships and you know it because it, it, it's so compelling you know, I've often thought about, of course, we talk about truth in this space a lot. And in this conversation, we've talked about a little bit touched on, you know, what's the role of kind of a foundational orienting truth for, uh, you know, for uh, a sound society, let's say. And um, <laughs> lost my train of thought here. No, it's gone. Um, last time we talked, speaking of truth, um, last time we spoke, we had that long talk. Um, I was at my cabin. It was uh, loosely based on psychedelics and Bitcoin. But one of the points there we were discussing was how Bitcoin serves as this foundation to society, right? Like we can build these human monuments that are filled with human intentions, guided by human governance. And those might last 50 years or 100 years, but they slowly decay over time because humans are in charge and they're easy to change politics du jour come and all of a sudden we, we screw up something that once was good. However, if we have this, this incorruptible institution, this foundation upon which we can build much higher societies that doesn't decay over time, all of a sudden we have this anchor of truth or this stability or this thing that turns or creates order out of chaos. And then we can architect around that. And I, I do agree that if we are right, this is an inflection point in society. It's on the hall of fame of inflection points of society. And I, it's really hard to even extrapolate what could come because I think the human race is, is special. And I think right now we're mostly asleep. I think the internet's a juvenile. I think Bitcoin's not even a teenager, you know? So I think we have a lot of growing up to do and what we think we know about the internet and social media and money and technology and society, we don't know anything yet. And it, it's hubristic to think that we do. And it's also hubristic to think that we can architect these institutions and expect them to last. It's not possible. We can't process this amount of data. We can't manage an economy, right? These things must be outsourced to the hive mind. And so I think Bitcoin just is an ins instantiation of, of that uh, rec recognition that we can't do it. So we outsource it to the machine. And yeah. Dan and I, we were, we were talking about this earlier today, but- schedule. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember what I was going to say now. So just that, um, 
like one of the definitions of of truth i've just kind of been mulling it over recently and you know maybe there is no good definition but that is is that it is truth is that which compels right and and uh, what the reason why the the long-winded point i was making was just that to see so many people in this space whether they're on twitter whether they're entrepreneurs in this space working in some capacity be so compelled you know it almost speaks to uh, that potential phenomenon when you encounter truth that it just compels so much of your action you know compels so much your behavior to give to it you know everybody just look how much contribution like voluntary contribution from core devs to writers to podcasters to all manner of people in this space like i've, I've certainly never encountered um an industry or an entity that conjures that much voluntary contribution and again you know to dan's point and and what well, everything we've been discussing i just think that's all indicative of something that is extremely special in ways that we probably are only just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding uh, how and why, but that it has that level of compulsion to bring people in and people derive so much meaning from it is just so incredibly special. And once you, once you kind of see that, um, it's hard to unsee it. Yeah. It's, you know, we were talking a little bit about consciousness earlier, I guess if we want to, I think Brandon was touching on it a little bit and we can kind of delve into it. Um, <clears throat> but essentially like the way that I think about consciousness is that if you remove any sort of religious aspect to it, it's must it must reside in the confines of your skull and the brain matter in your head. That's where it exists. And there must be some component of, I would argue when you're born, I'm not exactly sure if you are basically a blank slate. You've got genetic predispositions, but largely there's been no, as a hard drive, if your brain's a hard drive, very little information has been written onto it. And I think that your consciousness resides from the continuity or compression of all of your memories combined. And so Brandon and I were talking about how um, we, were, we were scheduling this event, this podcast that we're all on, and I've outsourced part of my brain to my calendar. If it's not on my calendar, I'm going to forget about it for sure. Um, and so when you think about a consciousness, if your consciousness is the compression of all of your memories, then if I store my memories on paper or digitally, is that part of who I am? Like if I start to outsource all these images, like for example, I take photos at certain events I go to so I can look at them again versus storing them in my mind. Same with all my notes. But if previously I just memorized that or taken a more conscious effort to take in the situation, that memory would have been etched here, but it's still all of part of me. Um, with Bitcoin, it gets really interesting because, you know, now like with money as uh, quite a few folks now, like myself and Monsieur and Breedlove, I think we like to wax poetically about time and energy and money. You know, money is this ultimate compression of all of our life's energy and time. Like at the end of your working career, that number in your bank account represents your whole life's worth of work. Now, certainly you have other things like, if, I would hope you have other things like a family, friends, et cetera, to look back on your time that you spent. But money is that, that scoreboard, that, that representation of time and energy into one number. And it's about the allocation of that. You know, that's what capitalism is all about, is that allocation of time and energy. And so when we think about you know, like how we interact with this world, like the preservation 
the preservation of um, value, the preservation of that, that, that record-keeping mechanism is paramount for human freedom. And, and as we look towards the future, when we start to outsource more and more of our brain to machines, and we become one with the machine, because as what, you know, if, if we all had a chip that I could install on my head that would instantly give me access to the internet and I'd have a photographic memory, I'd probably do it. I know there's security risks. I'd probably do it, right? Maybe, maybe there's some, maybe there's some ways to mitigate this, the risks, but if I didn't do it, a lot of other people would. And so as we become closer and closer with machines, having this digital record keeping mechanism, I think is part of the core fundamental part that like enables us to become one with the machines over time, where eventually we'll build a machine that's conscious or as any sort of classical definition could define consciousness as, I mean, it's pretty hard to pin down. Um, and then as we become more and more integrated with it, Bitcoin represents this way to make sure that things are allocated effectively to serve to serve conscious beings. And so that's, that's ultimately what Bitcoin's purpose is, is it's about the efficient allocation of time and energy. And Bitcoin's ledger ensures that allocation happens in, in the most fair way possible um, that allows freedom and entrepreneurial outcomes to be dictated by the scoreboard. I love that point. And I was going to add to that regarding merging with machines is, yeah, you make a strong point that we're going to outsource the things that machines are better at computation, memory, um, you know, various other things. And then humans can spend more time doing what they're good at, which is creativity, art, empathy, um, any type of services like bedside manner type services that will always done, be done by humans. And I see a future where we're going to continue the, our algorithms improving. They're going to ingest more data. Uh, I think this is going to ramp up tremendously in the next decade. And we're going to come to a line where either you tell the machine what to do or the machine tells you what to do. And obviously you want to be above the machine level, but the vast majority of people will be below the machine level. And that creates all kinds of weird dystopian potentials. And I, I watched the first episode of Westworld uh, season three last night, and they're actually playing with this theme, which is there in, in the show, there's like this app algorithm that essentially coordinates who does what jobs at what time, and they know everything about you. So they just ping your phone. They say, John, we have a job that's perfect for you, or sorry, no jobs are perfect for you today. And it's very much Marxist. It's from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And so there's this algorithmic dystopian, or I guess they would call it utopian communist kind of future. And that's one way to coordinate society, right? That would be the, the force angle of coordinating society, or you can coordinate through free markets. And back to the banking class full of hubris, they think that they're capable of coordinating society through an algorithm. They think that's good. Um, I and probably pretty much all Bitcoiners would take the opposite position there that a free market is better. And so, um, and back to the machines thing, if we're going to sort of merge with machines, which some people like Elon Musk say, that's our only way of surviving in the future, right? We need to adapt and evolve with the machines before the machines make us obsolete. So if we take that premise as true, um, Bitcoin fits in very nicely as a money for machines. And it, it, it will be the only way to coordinate time once we sort of break the glass ceiling of our nation state central coordinator nonsense. And I hope this happens. And I hope we look back and go, wow, look at those silly monkeys down there. <laughs> yeah, I have, if we make it, if we make it, I have very little doubt 
we'll look back and, and say, look at those silly little monkeys down there. Because I just, it, it's so difficult to, to think and even act outside your time. You know, the sovereign individual was really good at, at uh, elucidating that point. And that's the one that so many people have, you know, struggle with today, I think, you know, so many just, the default assumption is that you're a free thinking individual, and you make decisions based on the best available data and the the process of uh, critical and rational logical thinking. And um, I just think that is so far from the truth and the degree to which it is far from the truth is where that disparity between where we will be and what we look, what our perception is of what we're looking back on, you know, those monkeys down below that you just referenced will be, you know, it's, it's, I always find it funny when you look back on like a commercial from the forties, you know, the fifties or whatever, or any, you know, any era, you know, that's, that's clearly def like you can make a clear delineation. I mean, even if you look at the eighties, how people dressed and spoke and, you know, the further back you go, the differences are more apparent. It's not like they thought they were odd or ridiculous in that time. They weren't aware of, of their biases, of their default behaviors, of their default assumptions during that time. And I, you know, one of the things that I wish we saw more of today was an appreciation for how um, manipulated ultimately, you know, in, in some cases mildly, in some cases more egregiously, how manipulated you are these days and how how much of a bias that you have. And so, you know, maybe some humility in your approach to what your opinion is, and how you've come to form it, and how infallible you think it may or may not be, is warranted. Because, you know, and again, we, we look at all this, you know, the social chaos that we see today. And among other things, it's extremely strongly held, you know, opinions, beliefs, and perspectives that increasingly seem to allow less and less opposing views in. And one of the things I, I love about Bitcoin and Bitcoin Twitter is like, I'll take the, uh, you know, the lack of decorum and the quote unquote toxicity, if it means that we can, you know, we can get more quickly to a better approximation of, of the truth of a matter or clarity of perspective or something like that. I'm, you know, my ego's enough in check that like I can take a beating if it means I'm going to come out the other end with what I perceive to be a, you know, a closer approximation of the truth, all, all fair. Um, but that seems to be, you know, very unique, unique case uh, to Bitcoin these days. And especially in these increased, you know, uh, uh, polarized times and political dynamic and stuff. But um, I agree. I think, and I keep stressing this point on, on recent pods, but I think we look back and, and wonder how we could um, be, you know, could have been so sort of misguided as we do now. Like if we look back at the medieval period, or if we look back at the period of slavery or something, and we, you know, we, we, we are fairly critical of ourselves, but um we are to probably inevitably uh, a victim of the times that we're in, much as we, we make attempts to see things as clearly as possible. You know, I think that the, 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 the environment that we're in, you know, to bring it back to uh, the plant analogies, the, the environment that we're in inform us so much. Um, we think we're kind of exist in a vacuum and it's just the nature of the environment around us is just a matter of happenstance. But 
so much of the intricate and invisible details of that environment inform how we think and what we think. And, you know, one, one of the, I've been listening a lot lately to um, Jordan Peterson's biblical series. And, um, you know, one of the points he, yeah, one of the points he, he makes is, I mean, he makes a lot of points, so I'll, I'll try not to, uh, to summarize too much of it because uh, I'm sure I'll get lost. But one of the, the, why it's important to be open to discourse and discussion and opposing views and ideas um, that come from the environment around you is because the environment is information, of course, right? You act in an environment, you get feedback and you get information from it but it's a bit more of a alchemical or metaphysical process than just that um, because you know, the feedback you get literally um, puts you in a better form, i.e. it informs you, transforms you to operate more effectively toward your desired end in that environment. You know, so l- listening to the environment and, and taking in as much information as you can which again goes back to the point of what I think one of our the mistakes being made a lot today is closing off yourself to a lot of the feedback that the environment may be giving you or, or information that it may be offering up either through discourse or just, you know, behavioral feedback um, is so misguided because you are literally transformed into a better version of yourself uh, with which to move through the environment to your desired end by by collecting all that feedback and integrating into you. So not exactly sure what the point there was, but something when you guys said said it Yeah, yeah, sure. You're touching on the hero's journey. You're going through a catalyst moment that changes who you are fundamentally. And it's this this epic saga that a Bitcoiner goes through. I forget forget who, someone wrote an article on like Bitcoin, the hero's journey. And I took some inspiration from that. I forget though, but he, I think it's Pratik. Uh, he, he had some awesome thoughts on how analogous learning about Bitcoin was that hero's journey. Is it changes who you are fundamentally? Yeah. 100%. I was going to make a point earlier that I'll just reference now while we have a pause, which is that, um, let's see, how can I frame this up? So it's about the trophic cascade effect, which is that we have this Bitcoin thing and it seems like a small thing, sound money or an investment or you improve your sharp ratio, whatever. But this small thing comes into an environment and has an outside effect. And so the analogy is the, the trophic cascade effect where in the Rocky Mountain region, uh, about 200 years ago, they killed all the gray wolves because the wolves were eating um, animals that the farmers had. So they essentially removed the apex predator from the environment. And then about 20 years ago, they decided, you know what, maybe we want the apex predator back. So they reintroduced the gray wolf. And what that gray wolf did was it actually kept the ungulate population, the deer and elk population in check. So they had a healthy population, which protected the grasslands, which helped the beavers and the birds come back, which ultimately moved the path of the river, right? So this cascade through the trophic ecosystem um, so just introducing the apex predator had all this downstream positive effects. And Bitcoin is that gray wolf. It's the apex predator of money. So you introduce that into the, the ecosystem here, even though it's one little thing, one part of the puzzle, it's going to spill over and have all this cascading positive effect. Yeah, I love that. 
And I agree. You know, it goes to that conversation that we often have about, you know, fiat this and fiat that, right? And it's basically the the opposite of that. It's you know what 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 things are improved when um, people integrate or when society is is founded upon a, a sound money with the characteristics and attributes of Bitcoin. And you know that's what makes all this so exciting because when you start to realize how the as as Dan was saying, you know, if if money is our stored time and energy, it's a emblem. It's an emblem of our sacrifice, effectively. You know, when the nature of what that is changes, um, naturally, it's going to have profound effects on so many different things. Because it's it's almost as if nothing is more important than that thing, and the way that that thing treats your time and your energy and your sacrifice will go a long way to shaping how you behave and how the society that's coordinated with such a mechanism functions, right? And, um, you know, that's what, that's what I find so enjoyable about these discussions is that we get to just kind of nerd out on what's going on here, first of all, recognize that something very special is going on. And then, you know, just think like, in what ways is this innervating our minds and changing our behavior and being represented in the broader society. And, uh, you know, it, it continues to amaze me kind of how, how much of an influence it's going to have. And like, like we all recognize and keep saying, so early days. I mean, early days for adoption, early days for this Bitcoin story, and early days for the effects and changes that are going to be inspired by this thing. You know, I, I like to think of you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoiners history, as, as many of us do, uh, in intervals of the havings. And I just, it's fun for me to think like, what's everyone going to look like at the 2024 having? Like, what are the hardcore Bitcoiners going to look and sound like then? And what are they going to look like at the 2028 having and the 2032 having? Like, because I feel like the changes are going to compound and be so dramatic. And then, of course, the resources available to express those changes if NGU continues to do its thing that um, I don't know, it's, it's it just, I get a kick out of uh, imagining how we're all going to be in, in, you know, four, eight, 12 years time. Now there's an awesome point here that I, I kind of have this visualization in my mind about how Bitcoin expands and sort of these concentric rings. And over time we have more surface area as a user base so that we can interact with increasingly normal, or sanitized individuals. So it starts with this hot, fiery, you know, center uh, made of metal in our sun, right? So much gravity compresses um, hydrogen into helium and it's just this burning furnace of weirdos, essentially uh, libertarians, <laughs> cypherpunks, et cetera. And then it grows a little bit and all of a sudden, who, who's on the, the edge of that sphere, the surface area of the libertarians and the cypherpunks? That'd be guys like Dan who got in, you know, at that next wave um, they have a foot into the weird for whatever reason they have an insight into that culture. And now you have this, this new ring formed. Then you go through another bear market, you lose most of them, you harden the base. And then 2017 comes, I get lured in. I consider myself having one foot in the matrix, one foot out. I think most of the 2017 class is increasingly normal uh, by society standard compared to previous classes. And now 2020, what happens is that 17 class who got hardened during the bear market now has the ability to interface with even more normal people. 
And each time that happens, it, it, it is exponential, right? The sphere is larger, the surface area increases exponentially. And that makes the cycle now pretty interesting because everyone knows about it. And we have quote unquote normies able to interface, speak, guys like Michael Saylor, guys like probably the people you're talking to in the 2020 class, um, interfacing. And so to me, <laughs> all signs are let's go. <laughs> Yeah, I love I love what Brandon brought up there, which is that through each wave, each you know each class of Bitcoin, I love <laughs> I love that terminology. It's like we uh, you know we started our schooling in Bitcoin. It's whatever you first got into it, you know, and then then they get baked or they graduate after going through like a full cycle. I think Stefan Lavero was talking about this today as well. Um, that you know that seventeen cohort have been through a full boom bear cycle, which is a boom bust cycle, a bull bear cycle. Um, and with each concurrent cycle, like with each cycle, the base expands exponentially, not just, not just, you know, linear, in a linear fashion. That's where I don't think a lot of the OGs really understand that, like, this next wave is the biggest one and it's bigger by a magnitude of all the other ones combined. Like, you know, I, I don't think this will be a typical cycle too. I think this will be abnormal. For example, like, I'm not sure if we'll see an 80% drawdown again. If people better, if they more adequately understand Bitcoin, have better ways to hodl it and have better mechanisms to granularly control it, for example, like borrowing against it using unchained capital or lending it out or selling covered calls, et cetera, they might, you know, reduce the amount of supply hitting the market. And they also might be more disciplined seeing that it survived all these other, <laughs> all these other cycles. We may not see it dip down 80%. Maybe it's only 40% dip. or Maybe it's none. What if it, what if it flattens out? for a little while and the dip is it just doesn't, it just doesn't go up. You know, like people, people think that the other cycles are gonna be like all the other ones. I don't think so. This one's gonna be fucking huge. It's gonna be hundreds of millions of people. Governments will be talking about it incessantly. It's, it's going to be a phenomenal shift. I, I just think a lot of folks aren't really grokking what that means, especially Bitcoin uh, thought leaders as well, where they're focused on that core metal the core hot metal, the core of the Bitcoin philosophy. And I think that's amazing. If they want to stay there, cool, whatever. It's, it's your own life and your own trajectory. But I would, it would feel sad to me if they didn't figure out how to make themselves appeal a little bit more to mainstream without losing the integrity of their message. Because I think they're so valuable to that cultural core. My worry is that as bigger and bigger folks come in, I'm not sure if they'll be part of the Bitcoin core anymore. Like, if only 50,000 people follow X influencer who was previously a part of Bitcoin's core philosophy and 50 million follow someone else and they're about 80 to 90% of the message, that's what Bitcoin's gonna be. Bitcoin is the aggregate subjective belief in Bitcoin. So I'm not asking them to dilute their message. I'm just asking them to think about how to expand their message to a wider audience. And that's where, you know, for example, me and Brandon are in a couple of Bitcoin or chat rooms where I cross post my tweets on LinkedIn. Do I like hanging out on LinkedIn? No, I like to hang out on Twitter. That's where, that's where I like to hang out. <laughs> also YouTube, like YouTube is a huge channel, but not many Bitcoiners are there. The Bitcoin message should be heard everywhere. It's not just for Twitter. It's not just for long blog posts or podcasts, which this has been a super fun time. You know, Bitcoin, we should tell everyone about Bitcoin everywhere we go. And I think some Bitcoin and uh, core kind of the, who represent the core philosophy of Bitcoin, it'd be great 
if they played a little bit more proactive part in getting their message out to a, a wider audience, not diluting it, not changing it, just figuring out how to get it in more places. I, I agree. And, but I also think as Brandon was saying, is that this orange force field just continues expanding and, it, and it's bringing these people in that were on the fringe from an ideological or interest you know, perspective. We get so many more people that have different methods of expression, that have different ways of, of seeing this thing, different interpretations. And I love that, you know, because Bitcoin is for everyone and Bitcoin is for everything. It's, after all, it's money. And what is money? Money is our time, energy, sacrifice, emblematized, and, you know, potentially more. But even if it's just that, that means that it's literally of extreme importance and meaning to, to nearly everybody on the planet. So, when people come in and interact with that, you know, if it inspires you to sing, dance, paint, talk, short form, long form, like, you know, whatever, what's great about all these, you know, more and more people coming in is we're going to have a broader base of people that are going to be inspired in all sorts of diverse ways to address and express this, their feelings, their, their ideology, their interest in this thing. And that will continue the, that orange, you know, that big orange force field going out further and further and further, because it's just them doing that will appeal to their little subsection. Another group will appeal to their subsection. So, you know, my, you know, my suggestion when, when people hit me up or whatever, it's just like, just whatever your thing is, express it, put it, you know, try it on different channels, do whatever, like whatever feels right to you, express it. And someone it'll, you know, it'll appeal to someone, you know, you'll be a little bit of a beacon to someone who said, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that, uh, th that subject matter or that way of expressing could, you know, uh, was related to Bitcoin in any way. So I, it, it excites me tremendously to, to know that so many more people are coming in and there's going to be so many more different ways to, um, to appeal, you know, for people to, to latch on to this thing. But to your point about uh, this cycle, I don't get too wrapped up in trying to predict like when a certain mark on the horizon is going to be met, you know, kind of looking at the four years or the stock to flow or stuff like that. I mean, it just, I, I you know, I, I just don't do much of it, but I have been, you know, thinking recently because the narrative or the, let's say the broader narrative has become almost so de facto, like you come in and, you know, you auto DCA, and you never sell it and you, st and you store it this way. Um, th that, that has become uh, so common. And because and, when, when, when we came in, you know, Dan, Brandon, I came in a little bit before you and then you came in, like the, 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 the approach to all this was a little bit less clear. And there was certainly a lot more, let's say, uh, variables that might serve to distract you. But maybe one of the reasons why the 2020 class has been so hard and fast is because they got in and they were told exactly how to approach this thing. And then they just, you know, got to feast on all the great resources that are now available. And those things combined made the transition in so easy, made the switch to flick, you know, so easy and all the other downstream effects that occur as a result of that. So if that continues uh, and if, NGU continues to be such a huge uh, method of bringing people in, the clarity and obviousness of the narrative combined with that, it is a bit hard to, you know, 
conceive of it being kind of under wraps for that much longer, you know, that, that, that big players and little players and mainstream players, it's just too easy of a message to not, you know, kind of spread far and wide really, really quickly once, you know, once things start taking off again. So I listened to Preston, um, can't remember whose pod he was on, but he was saying, I think it was Stefan Levera actually, uh, you know, he was saying like, I think it's possible that we reach escape velocity, you know, not exactly sure what that means, but maybe it just means like a very high degree of distribution of, of Bitcoin throughout the global economy. Um, maybe we reach it in this four year cycle um, because, you know, things could, things could really, really accelerate, you know, gradually then suddenly. And um, maybe it doesn't take, you know, the eight, the 12, the 16 years for, for this to play out because I know we're in our own little echo chamber. So we're not the best judges of this much as we try to be as, as objective and critical of our own views as, as possible, but it's really hard to imagine this staying under wraps for very much longer. I think it's the first cycle that it's actually needed. Like there's a purpose for Bitcoin and big money actually needs it. And I think that's an important point. Another important point is that I think people are coming to the, the realization that Bitcoin is an asset that they should own independent of the like niche Bitcoin content that we sort of create for, our, for each other. And I think that's a really important point. Like you look at Ethereum, nobody even knows what it is. You look at Bitcoin, you go, it's a fixed supply. It's non-state money. And if the supply is fixed and the demand goes up, the price goes up. You should probably own some in a time when the dollar's going down. Done. Like that's rational economic calculus that smart people will figure out without too much trouble. And so I think that shifted in 2020, which could lead to a period where we don't have this um, bear market where it's a bubble, it's tulips, enough people hold the supply and we're good. Um, the next point is about the hardliners which I have seen Dan tussle here. And I actually, uh, I, I see both sides. Like there's a specialization here. I'm actually much closer to Dan's beliefs here in terms of from a marketing angle. I feel like I'm more on the, the exterior, the surface area of Bitcoin. But the hardliners, they have an important purpose. They beat the drum of not your keys, not your coin. And, you know, shit coins are shit coins. And all these other important mantras that actually do help Bitcoin succeed. But the, the, the exterior, the pomps of the world, the people at the top of the funnel, they're drawing new people in. You got to get them interested with the easy stuff. Then they get in, they're a little bit interested, they own some, and then you pass them off to someone else to take them down the journey. And there's no other way to do it, right? We should specialize. We should honor that, um, new, that burning fire in the middle at the same time as honoring the people on the top of the funnel. You, you can't do it without both. And so... I think some people just don't understand marketing from this angle. So they don't see this as being going on or something like that. And that's also fine. Like I don't have a, a cypherpunk background, nor am I extremely technical. And so I learn a lot from these things. Like I'm going through the hurdles right now. And so I'm, I'm thankful for the people who blaze the trail deeper into the rabbit hole, but we also have to figure out how we're going to get the top line going. So. I agree with Brandon hundred percent. It's, there is no more important or less important function. It's there, there's the folks at the more bottom of the funnel who are the hardest core Bitcoiners that turn the casual Bitcoiner who holds their coins and Coinbase into a full node running, not your keys, not your coins, Bitcoiner. And I think that's the ultimate objective. 
they're, they're the, they're the last part of the funnel and that's extremely important. And if we can, if we can make that last part of the funnel happen sooner, that would be even better. I totally agree with a hundred percent of what you're saying and, and their philosophy. Um, yeah, I think, I think the word marketing had, it was a bit of a loaded term in the space. I think there's a lot of emotion attached to how people felt about it. Uh, versus I, I don't think many had conceptualized that talking to your friends and family is marketing. I, I think they thought it was like this very cheesy formal process of like running TV commercials. Um, so I, I think there was a bit of a, people weren't exactly sure what it meant by the word marketing. I think to, and some people it was a loaded term left over from the ICO boom where marketing equaled scam. So I, I can see why people felt that way. And I totally agree that the, uh, that the core hardliner shouldn't change. I, I don't think they should. Um, I think that we need that core anti-reverent philosophy of, of like, no, we are, this is the core philosophy of Bitcoin and that's not going to change and you got to deal with it. Totally agree. I more lament that that philosophy, that if they don't engage different marketing channels like LinkedIn or YouTube, for example, a lot of Bitcoiners don't like YouTube because they feel it's scammy and sleazy. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a lot of great YouTube channels that are phenomenally high quality content. Um, Kyrgyzstan, I don't know if anyone's ever seen that. They've got phenomenal content. Um, there, there's a bunch of different channels that have great content. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners have like shied away from YouTube just because the association um, or same with like LinkedIn. Uh, me and Francis, <laughs> me and Francis are like the, the few Bitcoiners and Travis Kling, I see him over there in Pomp are the few on LinkedIn. And I'm like, I don't like LinkedIn. I'm just there to spread the word of Bitcoin. So I more lament that, um, the hardliners don't embrace marketing and, and channels to to get that hardliner philosophy even greater in, in terms of quantity. So that's what I more lament about rather than I, I don't lament that they're changing. I don't want them to change at all. It's more of I want them to have a greater reach. Yeah. My perspective on this is I just think you you know Bitcoin is that opportunity to whatever you feel compelled to express around it you know whatever it inspires you or compels you to express that's what you should do and um you know if you are compelled to go on linkedin and go on to uh instagram and youtube and you're you know genuinely being yourself your inspired self and talking about this thing that you're super into man more power to you have at it do do your thing um what i just what i what's so great about this is it gives people like a, a confidence and ability to finally express something that they're really, really passionate about and that they really believe in. And so if, if, if your method of doing that is being like a, a toxic cyber hornet on Twitter, then sure, you know, be that crew because I love those, that crew. Uh, and, it, and if it's, you know, doing documentaries or doing a, you know, stage show about Bitcoin, then, then also great, you know? So I think that's what's so great about this. We keep getting more and more people that are compelled to express in some way about this thing. And um, it really is a beautiful thing to watch unfold. And uh, it's so great to have a front row seat for it all. Um, but I don't know, Brandon, did we lose you? Oh no, you're back. Um, Guys, I, only got a, I only got about three more minutes and I got to run. Yeah, I was just, just going to shut it down. I was going to give you both a chance at a last word before we closed it out. All right, guys, uh, out there, if you're on the stream or listening in your earbuds, appreciate you guys spending a couple hours with us. That was an awesome chat. Um, love spending time with you guys. It feels like brethren in the revolution or some sort of thing like that. So that fires me up. 
If you want to connect with me, come say hello on Twitter at B-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. If you want to auto DCA some Bitcoin with Swan, you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash quitum. And if you sign up, you'll get $10 with a free Bitcoin when you do sign up. Uh, that's US only. And yeah, go ahead, Dan. Well, John, thanks for having me on. Brandon, it was a pleasure chatting with you in terms of a jam session. I feel like it's been long overdue. COVID fucking sucks. Um, <laughs> I miss my Bitcoin conferences, hanging out with my Bitcoiners. So it's, uh, I can't wait till we're back at another conference again, having some beers, jamming on different aspects of Bitcoin. So this has been a, a ton of fun. Um, you know, for myself, if you want to follow me, Twitter's where I'm most active. I'm Dan Held on Twitter. Uh, and uh, on YouTube, I'm starting to experiment a little bit. So I'm Dan Held on YouTube as well. It's, uh, I might be putting out a little bit more um, cinematic sort of style content, which I previewed for the white paper day, uh, which was, was a little cool. bit more of an emo a little bit more of an emotional pull. We're part of a revolution here and I, I want to create the propaganda for it. <laughs> so I got a couple cool things in the pipeline there. Um, and then of course I work at Kraken now. My, my opinion is independent of Kraken. So keep that in mind. Uh, everything I've mentioned on the show is Dan Held's personal opinion. If you want to open up a, uh, if you want to open up an account at Kraken, which lets you buy Bitcoin or anything else you'd like, you can do that uh, at Kraken.com and we're available in the US and um, all over Europe. Uh, those are our two primary regions. So again, John, thanks for having me. Brandon, great to hang out again. It was a pleasure. Well, Dan, thanks for joining, man. It was a pleasure to finally connect. And Brandon, it's, uh, it's always fun to jam with you, man. So we'll, uh, until the next time. Hope you guys uh, are well, and uh, hopefully it's not too long before we get one of those face-to-face -face conferences back back on the go. Because I agree, COVID does suck. So hopefully, it comes to an end soon. Anyways, guys, we'll talk soon. Cheers. Yeah. Later, guys.